Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be talking with 538's managing editor, Micah Cohen. For those of you who haven't heard of 538, it's a website founded by Nate Silver that uses statistical analysis to tell stories about elections, politics, sports, science, and economics. Given the 2020 U.S. presidential elections are just around the corner on November 3rd, we spoke with Micah about the uncertainty of polling data, the importance of exerting caution when covering the election results, and what swing states might shape the race to the White House. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Micah now. Okay, Micah Cohen, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, well, I know that obviously the U.S. elections are, you know, less than a month away and there's just a lot going on. But I wonder if you could first just tell us a bit about yourself and your work at 538. Absolutely. So as you said, my name is Micah Cohen. I am the managing editor at 538, um, which basically just means I help kind of run the newsroom, plan our coverage, kind of really boils down to helping a really talented group of journalists do the best work they can do and, and largely getting out of their way. I've been working with 538 really since 2010. So before that, I worked at the New York Times um, when Nate Silver, who uh, is the founder of 538, came there. The Times licensed 538 for three years. Um, started working with Nate then. Really at the Times, it was, it was Nate and I and, and working really closely with the, with the Times graphics desk. Then ESPN bought, bought 538 in 2013. So I... I came along with Nate then. That was the point at which we built out, you know, we went from a staff of two or one and a half to 25, 30 people. Um, and, you know, we've been slowly growing ever since. Uh, so that's that's my history. It's uh, Tulane University, New York Times, 538. It's, it's, it's a pretty simple one. And tell us a little bit, 538, like how was it found? I mean, you mentioned how it was founded, but why is it called 538? So Nate started blogging about politics um, during the 2008 cycle. And eventually he, he called his blog 538, which is the number of electors in the Electoral College. Um, so that's why in order to win the presidency, you have to win, obviously, or maybe not so obviously for international listeners, but 270 electoral votes, which is just a majority of 538, right? You know, it's it's a name which which often elicits that question. Wait, what? 538? Why is it 538? President Trump recently uh, got the name wrong. He gave some other number, like 346 or something. Um, so I'm not sure it's the name you would have come to if you like did some brand research or something, but, uh, but yeah, that's where the name came from. But then yeah, Nate, Nate started it basically because he was getting frustrated with how the Obama Hillary Clinton democratic primary was going, um, was being covered, excuse me. Um, and he, he started writing about sort of some common mistakes the media was making in terms of dealing with the delegate race. And, and that's, that's kind of where it all started. Brilliant. 
Now, I noticed last week you were on Twitter and you said Joe Biden is getting closer to reaching 538's clearly favored threshold. But right now he's still favored from what I understand. I just wonder, can you tell us, you know, what does that mean? Like break it down for us. Yeah, so the, it's a it's a really good question because this question is kind of where we spend a lot of our time um, as as data journalists as it pertains to the election, right? So we have a statistical model um, that takes in data, polls, the economic indicators, that kind of stuff, and spits out win probabilities for each candidate. Those win probabilities, you know, are zero to one hundred percent, right? So there are no categories in terms of the win probabilities intrinsically, right? It just, you know, Biden has an eighty-three percent chance or an eighty-four percent chance. The issue is, is, is how do you communicate what that means to people? Really, people, um, even very numerate people, otherwise, don't have, don't always have a really good sense for what. Uh, what a probability means. So to give you an example, um, right now Biden is at like 84, 85% chance of winning. A lot of people will just round that up to 100%, right? Um, If they see our forecast, it says Biden, 85% chance. They will interpret that as Biden is certain to win the election. Even though, you know, that's about, let's say a one in six chance. That's about the odds that if you were playing Russian roulette, you would get the bullet, right? Nobody would ever want to be like, sure, I'll play Russian roulette. Yet, when we're dealing with probabilities, people, I think, have some difficulty. Everyone, by the way, me included, you know, there's sort of intellectually understanding the probabilities, but there's just your your people's brains are designed to detect patterns and to take mental shortcuts. And so that's one mental shortcut everyone takes. So when we were getting ready to launch our forecast, we sort of set up um, some some boundaries to correspond sort of some, you know, day-to-day language to the win probabilities. Um, so for example, Biden right now is in the favored quote unquote category. Um, he will become quote unquote clearly favored if he reaches a 90% chance of winning, right? If when Biden had, I don't know if actually he ever did, but if Biden had between a 55 and a 69% chance of winning, then our forecast would say he's slightly favored. Um, And if Biden somehow gets above a 98% chance of winning, the forecast will say he's very likely to win the election. Now, there's not like a really empirical reason we chose those cutoffs. Other than that, you know, we've been doing this a while and we're trying to help people understand what the win probability number means, sort of like if they were trying to apply it to their day-to-day life, right? If you were saying, hey, it's very likely to rain today or um, it's possible it might rain today or, you know, it's unlikely it will rain today. You know, what does that mean? How do people interpret that? That's something we think a lot about and and struggle with, frankly, but we're always kind of refining it. So in 2016, many polls, you know, came out and said Hillary Clinton was very much, you know, favored to win the U.S. election. I just wonder, are there any indicators that tell us that, you know, these favorable polls for Biden aren't a a repeat from 2016? You know, are you guys doing anything different with the methodology this time? Or are you communicating differently about um, the way you're running your models? 
Yeah. So, so the way you phrase that question is actually perfect. And, and those are the buckets I would break it out into is, is there anything different with the methodology? And is there anything different about how we're communicating the methodology and the forecast? The answer to the first question about the methodology itself is largely no. Our forecast works largely the same way it did in 2016 and largely the same way it did in 2012. We make refinements and improvements every cycle. So there are some differences or some differences in how it handles economic data. There's this new uncertainty index, um, which sort of combines some elements that it was doing separately before and adds some new elements. There are some COVID-specific elements that are new in terms of mail-in ballots as a source of uncertainty. But the bulk of the, the, bulk of the forecast and the methodology is the same. Um, just to say this out loud, the reason we think we didn't need to really change anything was we thought the forecast largely worked the way it was supposed to in 2016. It gave Trump about a one in three chance of winning um, by the day of the election. You know, more than that, it kind of identified his most likely route to winning, which was overperforming in the Electoral College relative to the popular vote. Um, and by the way, all that was was evident in the data if you were if you were willing to to kind of unpack it, which is to say, you know, national polls um, had Clinton up by a few percentage points. She won by a couple of percentage points. But polling at the time showed Trump um, performing better in the swing states than he did nationally. Um, and so there was reason to think he might overperform in the Electoral College. Now, there were some states with just the polls were off, right? Um, but that was more kind of a state-specific problem than, than a national problem. Um, so, okay, model is largely the same. We are communicating what it shows differently this year. Um, our forecast starts with a series of maps um, that are meant to represent sort of the range of likeliest outcomes. Um, so if you go to the page, it'll, you'll, you'll be hit right away with Biden is favored, and then you have a bunch of red and blue maps, right? And, and there are right now there are more blue maps than red maps. Um, and so right away you get like a sense of, okay, Biden is favored, but here are a bunch of maps and that's meant to show you there are a range of possibilities here that are consistent with the data, right? Um, and that's really the key, right? The whole reason we do a forecast is because polls are good. Um, they're really our best way of measuring public opinion. They're, best, they're our best tool for understanding the state of, a, state of an election, but they're inexact, right? Um, there's a margin of error. There are other sources of error. You know, if the polls were, if the polls were perfect, we, we wouldn't need a forecast at all, right? We would just take the polling average in every state and be like, okay, Biden's going to win this thing. Um, the forecast is really designed to measure how likely it is that the polls will be wrong. Um, and, and leaning more into that, leaning more into what are the sources of uncertainty here? What are the chances that the polls are going to be wrong? Something unexpected is going to be happening. And how could that happen? I think the, the way we write about the forecast and talk about the forecast and the way our, our visual journalists design the forecast 
we tried much more this year to lean into that uncertainty, lean into showing people there's a, here's the range of possibilities as opposed to here's the favorite, here's the underdog. It's a very binary thing, right? We're trying to, trying to present a more nuanced picture. Right. Um, and I just wonder, thinking about independent voters, you know, they can sometimes be the wild card in U.S. elections or primaries. Um, you know, is there any polling data out there looking at how they might shake things up? Yeah, it's a good question. So, th- and this is actually um, one one way in which Biden's polling is really different than Hillary Clinton's, and it, it's a reason that we would we would expect we won't get a repeat of 2016 where where the underdog wins. Biden is um, really crushing Trump with independent voters. Um, there are way, way fewer undecided voters. In 2016, there were a ton of undecided voters um, up until basically the last couple of days of the campaign. So let me let me kind of good naturedly, I hope, like push back a little bit at the premise of the question. I, you know, every we do this too, right? Every election we look for like, okay, what is the group that's gonna, that's gonna swing this election? That's gonna determine the outcome, right? Is it independent voters? Is it, um, you know, NASCAR dads or soccer moms or, you know, this year, right? It's like suburban white women. Um, and it's not that those groups like aren't important politically. It's just that the way elections normally work is you know, a candidate will do better or worse largely across the board, right? So Trump right now, according to the polls, is losing and losing by a wide margin. That's that's in part because independent voters um, are largely favor Biden, but it's also because every other group of voters has soured on Trump a bit. If you look at Trump's approval rating, for example, right, it is worse now among suburban white women, um, among Latino voters than it was four years ago. So yes, Biden is winning independent voters. Um, he's, he's winning a bunch of other demographic groups, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little circular if the, if that makes sense. It's like Biden is winning because he's winning among all these groups or Trump is losing because he's losing among all these groups. That's not to say it couldn't change. There's still a ways to go before before the election and that could, and that could change. And what about swing states? Are they the usual ones like Ohio, Pennsylvania? Are we seeing any other indicators that there might be other swing states that there haven't been before or is that unlikely? Well, so I'm going to use I'm going to use our forecast to answer this, okay. um, and I'll I'll use uh, what we call a, a tipping point chance. So that's the chance that um, a state will, like, quite literally, tip the election. Will provide one candidate or the other um, his or her 270th electoral vote. Right. So the idea here is that um, Texas is competitive. Right. You could call Texas a swing state. But if Biden is winning Texas, the election is already over. Biden doesn't need Texas to to win the election. And likewise, if Trump is winning Texas, that doesn't necessarily tell you that much about who won the election, right? Trump could very easily win Texas and and lose the election. So our tipping point chance tries to calculate the chances that one state, this or that state, will like tip the balance, right? Right now, it shows that there's a 25% chance that Pennsylvania will be the tipping point state. That's followed by Florida at about 16%, Wisconsin at 14%, 
Michigan at 11%, and then there's a drop off to actually Minnesota at, at 5%. So the answer is like, it's pretty much the usual suspects as far as the kind of crucial swing states are concerned, Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin, Michigan. There is a chance that Minnesota, I think, would probably surprise some people, uh, North Carolina after that, Arizona, but it's really, it's really kind of the usual suspects. Right. And do you think that voters are voting, they're not necessarily voting for Trump, but they're voting against Biden or Kamala Harris? It's not necessarily, and, and vice versa. I mean, is, is that what the data is showing you? Yeah, so, th- so this is an idea from political science called negative partisanship. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's this idea that more and more these days, it's not so much that you love your party uh, that motivates you to vote. It's really that you hate the other party. So if you look at uh, this one study, looked at how favorable and warm respondents rated kind of, you know, their own party and the other party. Feelings about your own party. So if I'm a Republican, feelings about the Republican Party. If I'm a Democrat, feelings about the Democratic Party. Um, feelings about your own party have really much been consistent, you know, 70s, mid-70s, basically, sometimes high 70s, ever since pretty much 1980. That's on a scale of zero to 100. Um, if you look at feelings towards the other party, back in the early 80s, they were not not super favorable, but like mid 40s, right? Mid 40s on a scale from zero to 100. Now they're south of south of 30, right? Like mid 20s. So that um, that explains a lot about sort of why partisanship is so much stronger nowadays. Um, why so many news events don't seem to kind of move the needle in terms of public opinion. Um, you know, negative partisanship really has come to kind of rule, uh, rule, rule the political landscape, and and in part that's because of what political scientist her name is Liliana Mason um, calls a mega identity, which is basically just the idea that like your political identity isn't separate anymore um, from your other identities, right? Everybody has a bunch of identities. You know, I might identify as. Um, a New Yorker, a Jewish American, um, other stuff. Um, but, but that all now for people is combined with, with their political identity. So nowadays, whether, whether or not Biden or Trump wins doesn't feel just like a political question to people, right? It feels like really a question about, about what's right and wrong in the world and, and um, what this country is going to be, right? Um, and so, you know, that idea is, is really, I think, one of the stories of contemporary politics and the data bears that out. Just that idea that like, one, politics isn't separate from, from every other identity we have. And two, hatred of the other party more than love of one's own party really is, is a huge motivating factor. Now, 538 put together a state-by-state guide, um, you know, in voting in the 2020 elections where, you know, you're looking at, you know, how do you actually vote and when do you have to get your your vote in and mail it in? How do you think mail-in ballots, you know, due to COVID-19 are going to impact this election? Is, Is there any data showing it's favorable for one party over the other? So, uh, 
the the honest answer the, or the first answer is like oh, i have no idea yeah. um you know we will see right a, a lot of states are changing their election laws on the fly um a lot of people are going to be voting for mail by the first time a lot of states uh and state officials will be counting the vote in ways they've never done before uh it's like it has the potential to be messy. Um, now, it, messy isn't the same thing as um, bad or rigged or or problematic, right? Elections are, are usually messy, frankly. Um, and counting the vote is usually messy. So even if the vote takes a few weeks to count, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of democracy, right? It's a possible it takes a couple of weeks to count. Um, and then we have a winner and, and we can be confident in, in the outcome. Um, of course, it might be messier than that, right? Um, and in that messiness, there there is the potential for bad actors to to sow discord, to sow distrust. So so that certainly is a is a source of worry. Um, that said, there have been a a few studies looking at how mail in ballots and how COVID affected turnout. And the answer, at least the preliminary findings, are kind of like, well, there's not much of an effect. And so, you know, I think there are, are reasons to be concerned and there are reasons to be sort of vigilant um, in how we cover the election and careful in how we talk about it. Um, and if you're a voter, there are reasons to, to take extra care to make sure you know how to vote um, and you know what the latest law is in, in your state. Um, but I, I wouldn't assume that... Um, that that the kind of weird circumstances this year will will necessarily throw everything you know out the window right um there were there were a bunch of primaries that took place um under various conditions some as coronavirus had taken more hold some less and and at least the early data we have suggests like there's not much of a there there in terms of um COVID affecting turnout um, or really affecting the result. But, you know, even saying that out loud makes me a little nervous. So like, you know, we'll see. Right. And bearing in mind, it might get messy. You know, what do you think journalists need to be mindful of when we're reporting on that on election day or even the weeks leading up to when there's a result, especially for those journalists listening who are maybe not from the United States? Like, you know, how should they be careful when reporting on this? Uh, it's a good question. So, uh, you know, I'm by no means an expert on this. The first thing I would say is just like, be careful, um, you know, take a beat, think about it. Um, what are you writing? Um, what are you showing? Uh, you know, if it's TV, what are you showing graphically? What is the potential there to confuse things? You know, so, so I'll, okay, a couple of things, I'll give you an example. Um, one is like we are trying to get our readers at least used to the idea that it might take a while to count the vote um, and to not assume that if it takes a few days or even a couple of weeks to count the vote, that that's inherently a sign of a rigged process or or a botched election. Right. You know, if you zoom back out for a second, OK, there's this pandemic. Um, the country has to, uh, you know, adjust its election administration accordingly, it's really not crazy to think, okay, yeah, it's going to take us longer to count the vote this year than it 
than it has in other years. So that's one thing. It's just getting people used to that idea and, and kind of urging, urging some patience, right? The other thing though is like that fact in itself presents a lot of a lot of problems. So for example, we might end up on election night, you know, a state could could report its election day vote first, let's say, right? Um, that you'll have you'll have votes cast on election day in person, um, and then you'll have a bunch of votes, let's say, that are mailed in. We know based on polling that in general, the election day vote, in-person vote, is likely to be much better for President Trump than the mail-in vote, right? So we could end up in weird cases where I'm going to take a random state, let's say Rhode Island, where Rhode Island is showing its results on election day, and it just so happens to be showing only its election day vote, right? Um, now, we might or might, might not know that, but that vote, so you could get a weird result where that vote, you look and you're like, wow, 10% of the vote is in in Rhode Island and Trump is ahead by 25 points. Oh my God, he's going to win Rhode Island, right? Um, of course, it, Trump is very unlikely to win Rhode Island. What, what, what would then happen in this totally made up scenario is the mail-in vote would then be counted and Biden would slowly come back and then and then take the lead. This is what's come to be called as like the blue shift, quote unquote. So that's a we we are trying to keep that idea and that potential for confusion in mind in sort of everything we're doing. So like if you have a map of the results on election night and you just start coloring it in by who's winning and then someone comes and looks at it at 8 p.m. or 9 p.m., um, what are they going to see? Are they going to see, you know, a sea of, of red to show Trump is winning everywhere? Well, maybe. And is that what they should, you know, is that is that an accurate representation of of what's happening, right? Well, maybe if it's just election day vote, maybe Trump is winning, maybe that is what you want to show. Um, I think there's a lot of potential for confusion there, right? Um, so I think sort of being much more careful in how you're talking about the results, how you're showing the results, and being much more specific, frankly, um, in describing for readers and viewers what kind of results we're getting, and most importantly, sort of like what we still don't have, right? Um, we still don't have 90% of the expected vote. That, that fact in past elections is usually a footnote, right? You see, okay, Trump has 55%, Hillary Clinton has 45%, and then really small print at the bottom, um, you know, 10% of expected vote in. We think this year that footnote should basically be the headline, right? Lead with what we don't still know. Um, and it, I, I think that it better prepares readers and viewers and anyone else for, for what could be a confusing night and kind of keeps everybody on the same page. Right. Um, and I just wonder, um, you know, if you were a betting man, would you say Biden is most likely to win this? Or do you think Trump is going to surprise us again in November? Well, um, I'm not a betting man. Um, you know, I, so our whole thing at 538, right, is like probabilities. Um, so, so I certainly would, ne would not come on here and say, oh, this candidate is going to win or, or that candidate is win. Let, let me say this. Um, this. This might be like a totally not uh, unsatisfying answer. Um, but right now, Biden is a, has an 86 in 100 chance 
of of winning the election according to our forecast. Um, I think if I had a bet, I would take the the under on that. I, you know, I would put Trump's chances a little higher, but really only a little bit higher. You know, I think maybe you know, if I were just to make something up, you know, maybe Trump has like a one in five chance of winning, um, which is non-trivial. Uh, and even Trump's chances, according to our forecast, thirteen and one hundred. That's non-trivial. That's a that's a real chance. Um, so I, you know, maybe I'm a little bit more uncertain about the uh, about the outcome than our than our forecast. But our forecast is uncertain about the outcome. So so we'll see. So there we go. I don't know if that answers at all. Yes, for it your does. Question. Well, Michael <laughs> Cohen, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. No, my pleasure. I hope I hope that was uh, at least somewhat interesting. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Tara. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this, you could subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.